Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This podcast contains explicit language. So that happened. Remember all that stuff about draining the swamp and taking down the Washington establishment? Well, President Trump talked to some guys from Goldman Sachs and has decided to be Jeb Bush instead. HuffPost reporter S.V. Date joins us to discuss the latest contours and convulsions of the Trump presidency. But some things never change, including the Democratic Party, which just blew a chance to pick up a House seat in deep red Kansas. Party leaders, they actually said this and appear to believe it, told reporters they thought the best way to win the election would be to not try to win it. Amanda Turkle helps us break down why Democrats are still bad at politics. Speaking of bad, for-profit colleges exploit people desperate for higher education, thanks partly to political rhetoric about how college is the only way to have a good life. We interviewed Virginia Commonwealth University professor Tressie McMillan Cottom about her new book on the great college swindling of America's lower classes. I'm Zach Carter. I'm Arthur Delaney. With Huffington Post reporters S.V. Date and Amanda Turkle. Here's Here's what what happened happened first. Hello, America. Welcome back to So That Happened, the Huffington Post politics podcast about politics and pain and sadness. Uh, I'm Arthur Delaney. Our regular host, Jason Lincolns, is on vacation. So I'm joined in studio with Zach Carter. Hi, everybody. And S.V. Date. Hey there. And uh, wow, what a week. Donald Trump flip-flopped like a hundred times in a row. Uh, you know, he he usually flip-flops a lot, so we're accustomed to Donald Trump not having any positions that are consistent over time, but it was remarkable how many times he flip-flopped and this they all, week. And they all flopped in the in the same direction, you know. So there'll be some days where he, he flips once, and then the next day he flips back, and he flops, and he's going back and forth. This was just like 15 different policies just all going from anti-establishment outsider... <sighs> Straight to centrist, uh, you know, d bag. Yeah, and they were, they weren't even flip flip flops. Isn't even a good term. I mean, this was like Tevas. <laughs> so there's like straps on these things yeah. and everything. Yeah, he was Socks. really strapping down <laughs> on the policy changes. Yeah, policy. Policy. I like that word. Policy. <laughs> when you deal with Donald Trump. So I there were so many flip flops that I made a list of some of our favorites. Uh, four of these, I think, came. In an interview with the uh, Wall Street Journal. And I think the biggest one was he no longer considers China to be a currency manipulator. This was something he said so much on the campaign. Uh, he, he called the country a manipulator of its currency, which made its currency less valuable. And therefore, the country was able to steal U.S. jobs. He said they were raping our country, is He's, what he said. Yes, that's right. And it, it, it was an economic metaphor, but it was a very violent economic metaphor. A gratuitous 
And uh, he said he would label China a currency manipulator on day one, which you know would initiate an international process with the WT, the World Trade Organization, that could theoretically result in protecting American jobs. In fairness, now day one was occupied by dealing with the the vast undercount of people on the National Mall for his inauguration. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, he had a lot to deal with that day. So, uh, Sharish, tell us a little more about. What he said this week, he said right. I, he, he talked to President Xi Jinping, right? He and, did, and uh, learned got, a lot. Apparently, got talked out of his position in like a ten-minute conversation. Well, he had the the president of China at Mar-a-Lago, his uh, his resort down in Palm Beach over the weekend. So there may have been some getting talked out of stuff down there as well. Uh, yeah. Maybe after the chocolate cake over which they discussed the missile strike? Who knows? Oh, yeah. Right? This wasn't a flip-flop but a, an all-time <laughs> Donald Trump quote where he said he talked about his Syrian missile strike with the president of China over the, quote, most beautiful piece of chocolate cake. <laughs> right. He was quite impressed with his chocolate cake and with the missile strikes. That was clear from that interview with uh, Fox Business the other day. But uh, getting back to the uh, the changes in position, I think the easiest way – to understand this is that Donald Trump, the candidate, really had no idea about any of these issues, really. I mean, all he knew was that his fan base didn't like them. His fan base thought that China has been screwing us over for all these years and by manipulating their currency, even though I think most economists have said over the last few years it's been kind of the opposite. Their currency has been rising in value. Slowly, slowly. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the dollar is still very strong relative to uh, to the yuan or the renminbi, and and you know the the active movements of of the Chinese currency to the extent that they're happening now tend to be going not to devalue but but to increase the value of the Chinese currency. But it is still much lower than than the dollar, and as a result, it makes it you know the sort of status quo where a lot of jobs were lost in the two thousands ish. Those jobs are very hard to to bring back or, or reach some sort of trade equilibrium with the the currencies being different the way they are. There are other things China does that steal American jobs, besides just devaluing the currency. For instance, there are massive supports for their steel industry, which have flooded the global steel market and you know is basically the reason that over the past 15 years, you've seen all these steel plants in the U.S. close. Yeah, and there are a bunch of active WTO uh, cases and investigations involving steel in particular. Uh, you know, there was there were, under the Obama administration, there were some cases involving tires. I mean, the the sort of uh, what you would consider unfair trade practices, even based on the the WTO free trade model, um, they they've been doing that for a long time. Uh, but but on currency plays, there isn't that there isn't a whole lot going on right now. But if you are worried about about currency, you should be worried about the strength of the dollar. It is it is a, a right. weird way of saying that that we are it'll be difficult to create manufacturing jobs. But in getting the States. <clears throat> getting back to candidate Trump, candidate Trump really had no interest in getting into some of these details. He didn't know what had been done by the Obama administration in terms of steel tariffs or anything like that. He didn't know what should be done. He really wasn't talking to anyone who knew the answer. He was basically talking to his uh, campaign people about what the cable news networks were saying about his last speech. That's I, what it was about. Sharish, I think you may have hit on a, a strong theory or explanation for how Trump works, uh, and it is that he doesn't know anything. Right. And that's it's the, not that he's an yeah. uh, evil genius <laughs> who's masterfully hacked the media and politics. Well, what's what's amazing is if you listen to his 
his explanations of some things. For example, he was describing his conversation with President Xi and uh, and and couched it like this. I, regarding North Korea, he wanted China to deal with North Korea since they're well, right there after all, right? And <laughs> I have learned in my conversation with President Xi that there's this history between China and North Korea that oh. makes it harder than you would think. And so mm. the president thinks that because he just learned this, Everyone is just learning it for the first time <laughs> along with him and therefore his new position makes total sense and aren't we all glad that he's learned this for us so that we would be making the right decision I, after all. Can I interject something positive that I think is happening here? You know, During the United States and China, there are a lot of problems with that relationship and there have been for several years and the United States – Hasn't had, I think, a really coherent way of dealing with it. But the way Trump was talking about China on the campaign trail was really, really dangerous. It was he was not he was, like he wasn't saying. Well, I mean, there's a case to be made that the United States should get tougher with China on a bunch of economic issues. There's a case to be made that that we should be tougher with China and ask them to do more in other foreign policy arenas. Uh, but there is not a great case to be made for going around saying that China is raping our country. They committed the greatest crime in the history of the world, and they're terrible. And so, even though I think Trump made a fool out of of himself on the public stage here, it at least seems like he's not trying to go to war with China. <laughs> no, that, and, that, and that's a very good point, is that because, and this again goes back to his malleability. I mean, he even bragged about this at one point, saying that, hey, I'm flexible. I'm flexible about all kinds of things. Now, that in particular was about Syria, but it, it goes to other areas as well. He doesn't have really many core values, and so when he learns from someone uh, that the reality is a little different from what he believed. He said, all right, whatever, and he's happy to go with it. For example, the Export-Import Bank. This is another one of, his, <laughs> oh of the God. flip-flops. So a couple right. other uh, flip-flops, yeah. just to be clear, so we're, people are counting, there was low interest rates. On the campaign, they were bad. This right. week, good. Mm-hmm. Uh, Janet Yellen, Federal Reserve Chairman. Uh, campaign, bad. This week, good. Keeper. And then Export-Import Bank. Right. On the campaign, get rid of it. Now, right. keep it. Yeah. Well, let's remember that one. He actually sat down and spoke with the with the head of, uh, of Boeing uh, some time ago about the Air Force One contract and it was probably discussed a little bit that, hey, you know, this Exim Bank actually helps us sell planes overseas, which means jobs in the United States. So maybe we ought to keep it. And it actually doesn't cost taxpayers anything. And again, he probably thought, I didn't know this, and <laughs> what have I learned? And I can tell people this is fascinating, and they'll be with me on it. Oh, wait a minute. I thought that he sat down with Boeing and these other companies and told them what to do, and that's how we negotiated the great deal for Air Force One. That is right. how well, Trump has built. Right. Are you saying he got negotiated out of his position? Uh, nothing has actually changed with the Air Force One contract, nor with the F-35 contract. So those are all fake. But what did happen was a change in the Exim Bank. So you tell me, what happened in that negotiation? Yeah. I mean, this, this is, there's been this duality in, in Trump, the, you know, since he, he launched the campaign, where sometimes he talks like he is, he's just a Paul Ryan conservative, traditional, you know, supply sider, pro-war Republican. Other times he talks like he is this right-wing nationalist leader who wants to totally overthrow everything we've ever done. I just think it's amazing that he is completely, at least for this week, 
discarded half of that persona entirely. Yeah, he went way more mainstream Republican this week and and uh, centrist Democrat for that matter. Right. Yeah. Uh, he did not become a more conservative Republican. He became much more politician. Even even the, the low interest rate thing, you know, there, there are a lot of mainstream economists who want higher interest rates. I think they're wrong, but they, they, they have a case to be made for that they're not crazy people, right? Um, no sitting president wants higher interest rates. Not if they want the economy <laughs> to grow in the short term. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, uh, regarding talking like a conservative Republican versus talking like a, a moderate Republican or a Democrat, the question needs to be asked, who wrote that speech? Where did those talking points, where did that script come from? And that'll tell you how he's going to speak. Now, on the campaign, that typically was Stephen Miller or Steve Bannon or some combination thereof. And therefore, you had the fiery stuff about China and pulling out of Nate and all. And uh, now when they're not writing that script and he's getting his his talking points from the new uh, national security advisor, uh, General McMaster, things sound a little bit different, don't they? So yeah, all, all these flip-flops happened in the course of a week or two, a week and a half during which Steve Bannon has been essentially banished from his <laughs> previously uh, lofty position within the National Security Council. He, Trump even said, you know, I don't really even like Steve Bannon. Bannon who? Right. We were to that point. He had this – he's a guy I work, you know, who worked Yeah, he's for a me. guy. Yeah, he's a, this well, there, guy. There were some reports that seemed to indicate that, that Trump is, is a little bit uh, jealous of, of the presidency and doesn't want to, to be seeding this image that Bannon is like the puppet master. This you know, pulling Bengali. Trump's, yeah. <laughs> That's right. the word that keeps being – Bandied about for Steve Bannon. I, what, what were people thinking when they did all these Steve Bannon's and evil genius profiles of him at the beginning of the year when he's like entire philosophy is based on a racist French novel from 1973? What were people thinking? They I mean, were thinking he, that if they wrote those, then Trump will get mad and get rid of them. Oh, the press is diabolical. Uh, all right. A couple fake more. News. <laughs> a, a couple more big flip flops. Syria, you know, that flip flop right. happened last week when he launched. The missiles. Right. There were um, a number of tweets and statements from 2013, 2014, which said Obama's making a huge mistake. Better stay out of Syria. It'll be it'll be bloody. And Assad, you know, he's bad, but all these other things are worse. And now one morning of TV coverage of, of children getting murdered by sarin gas and uh, we're sending a, a missile strike into, into Syria, which he adamantly opposed. <laughs> and the exact same thing, in fact. I think the big picture here is the interplay of Syria with uh, the globe, with Europe, with Russia. Right. Uh, and the biggest flip of the week, I believe, was on Wednesday when he said, I like NATO. I like NATO. Didn't you still like NATO? No, no. But you know, this one was, was couched in an amazing way. He he described how, well, now they're paying up, whereas before somehow they weren't, and now they're paying attention to terrorism where before they weren't, and therefore NATO had been obsolete, now it's not. Now, of course, the the cost structure of NATO, the 2% uh, contribution had been negotiated back in 2014. Let's briefly right? explain so, the importance of NATO and the post-World War II And how, world it, is, order. how it is funded. Right. Well, you know, NATO was invented. After World War II is a way to make sure that uh, there was a common defense against Russian and, and Eastern Bloc aggression in, in Eastern Europe and make sure that everyone agreed that a, a, uh, a, a strike against or a move against one of us is a strike against all of us, right? Now, the interesting thing was it worked 
very well. The Soviet Union ultimately collapsed. And the very first time, the very first time that the common defense clause was used was when the United States was attacked by terrorists. So contrary to the president, um, the only time NATO's ever acted has been in in an instance of terrorism when NATO uh, worked the United States in Afghanistan. So he was factually wrong in both cases and yet took credit for these changes and there haven't been any changes. So but aside from the f- supposedly phony reason that Trump articulated, why does he like NATO now? Well, because the last person he spoke to was the Secretary General of NATO, who explained to him all these things. Right, and they and they had that joint press conference right. where they both came out and talked. Yeah, so all's good. All he right, fixed it. yeah. All right, uh, SV Date, Zach Carter. It's thanks. been a pleasure. It's been a real pleasure, Donald Trump. Thanks, man. Good job, Don. We'll be right back. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. And we're back. You might have missed it this week, but there was an election, a special election in Kansas's 4th District. It was a major test of Donald Trump's popularity and the potential for Democrats to retake the House in 2018. But Democrats didn't really play. Their candidate, James Thompson, an attorney and army veteran, ended up losing by seven percentage points in a district that where Democrats were expected to lose by 25, 35, something astronomically large and humiliating. Joining me now to discuss this, we have Arthur Delaney. Hi. And Amanda Turkle. Hi. All of us work for the Huffington Post. I'm Zach Carter, of course. Uh, Amanda, what was the strategic motivation behind not playing in an election, which was actually happening. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think Democrats, uh, and it's not the first time national Democrats have tried to do this, try to stay away and maybe people wouldn't notice he's a Democrat. Uh, Even though in right now, being a Democrat is not necessarily a bad thing, even in a place that's as red as Kansas and in a district where Donald Trump, you know, should have. Yes, Donald Trump and Republicans, you know, should be winning by double digits and should be incredibly popular. So Democrats decided to stay away. National Democrats did not put any money into this race to help their candidate, James Thompson. And people really didn't start paying attention uh, outside the grassroots until the last minute. And James Thompson still was able to come so close despite any big financial support. So the DCCC, which is the 
Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. It's, it's the, the arm of the Democratic Party that's supposed to spend money on House races. Uh, and their communications director, Meredith Kelly, uh, told our own Sam Stein the other day that you do not get to the single digits in a district like this if you're a nationalized Democrat. End of story. That's just the way it is. Uh, to me, Arthur, correct me if I'm wrong, this sounds like essentially the Democratic Party's national strategy here from the top Democrats was to trick people in Kansas into voting for this guy, even though he was a Democrat. Uh, does that sound right? I, it's incredibly counterintuitive, I guess, if you're not an employee of the DCCC. Uh, because it sounds like what she's saying is, we suck, our brand is toxic, and we don't want people to know that we're Democrats. Even though, and I voted, so I know this, when you vote, it <laughs> says what party the candidates are. It'll say Democrat on the ballot. So even if you try to trick them, they'll find out at the last second that, wait a minute, James Thompson is a Democrat. No one told me. And people tend to run ads in races. You know, it's not it's not like the Democratic Party is the only organization that is capable of of advertising on television and and saying (laughs) things about politicians. Right. They're they're conservative groups. Why would it nationalize the election is my question. So the DCCC runs ads in that district. How is that nationalizing it to, to a potential voter? Like what, what does it matter to them that – So here's what I think – and I'm not saying that this is right. But you've seen this in other elections where Obama, for example, wouldn't go somewhere to campaign for a candidate because they didn't want to draw too much attention and attach that person to the national party and to you know, all the scary liberal things Obama is doing. You don't want Nancy Pelosi to go to Kansas, for example, because then it's easy for Republicans to tie that person and say he's just like Nancy Pelosi and all those other big spending liberals or whatever else people in these states don't like. So I think that's what they were afraid of. But again, this is a I feel like this is a different time and it requires maybe a different strategy. And as you're saying, that doesn't always work. You had this when Alison Lundergan Grimes ran in Kentucky, uh, obviously as a Democrat. She comes from a long Democratic family. And she was asked, did you vote for Obama? And she tried to do this thing where she wouldn't give an answer. She didn't answer that question. I remember that was <laughs> And awful. it was a huge debacle. Democrats were disappointed in her. No one else believed that she didn't actually vote for <laughs> Obama. So you can't really hide that. And right now, you know, Democrats are doing really well and there's a lot of energy. And so you know, I think there was a lot of frustration that Democrats didn't do more to help. The, the DCCC does have an argument that might make a lot of sense, which is we can't spend money in every race because there are 435 every two years. So we have limited resources. We want to use those resources only in elections where we have a chance of winning. That, that, that's that's not an insane argument. Uh, however, when when it comes in at seven points, clearly there was a chance of winning. And so, I think the, <laughs> the, the other argument so I would say is probably that fine, we win the special election, but will we be able to keep the seat when it's up for a regular election? And the atmosphere isn't as favorable to Democrats. But you know, a lot of people in the party say, "Look, you need to try." Like we've been frustrated that Democrats have been trying this uh, you know other strategy for a long time. Uh, Tom Perez and Keith Ellison, when they ran for DNC chair, both said they're going to pursue a 50-state strategy and should be playing more in these races. And Democrats now want to give it a shot. No, I mean, it, if you're going to do a 50-state strategy, what what possible thing are you going to do in Kansas if not this? What, what is the race that you're <laughs> going to put money in? I mean, it's clear right now it's clear that they actually meant 49 at most. A DCCC source told Huffington Post that they'd seen internal polling that showed him losing – 
by 20 points three weeks ago. And this may sound like Monday morning quarterbacking, but it was clear before this election that it would be close. So I feel like it's a very fair question to ask. Why didn't you try to win? It actually did look like there was Or a there are there. other things you can do besides throwing money in, you know, tweeting, for example, or just, you know, little <laughs> things little things like that that maybe don't require money. But you also, even if you know you're not going to win, but you think you might come close, you need to give your base something that looks like a victory or a success to keep them going. That's why these special elections have continued to energize the base. Because if you just keep losing, people are going to get demoralized. They're going to stop turning out to protest. So, you know, that, I think, was in the Democrats' interest to make sure that this was close, to keep their base going. And it does seem like uh, the, the lasting uh, lesson from, from this, other than uh, you know, the internal Democratic debate, is that Republicans are in deep doo-doo. Oh, yeah. I mean, Kansas is a very conservative state. And, and I also think there's, this, this says quite a bit about the types of candidates that Democrats – should be fielding in 2018 in districts like this. I mean, this guy was an economic populist. He was beloved by essentially the Bernie crew and the Bernie wing of the Democratic Party. He was also strongly pro-choice. So he wasn't giving up on, you know, he's not not choosing between what types of things he likes as a Democrat. He was was an all of the above Democrat. uh, And he came really close. So, I mean, I think we'll see, you know, more of this from people like Zephyr Teachout, from people like Jason Kander uh, running in conservative districts or conservative states and 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 trying to make a play for it. I don't know if the Democratic Party more broadly is going to want to actually invest in this. And I, I'm kind of curious uh, what you think about this, Amanda, because to me, the, the aftermath has there's there's been this very clear split where there are people from the establishment party organ saying this was always hopeless. It can never happen. And there are all these sort of Bernie affiliated people saying, you idiots, how could you blow this? Uh, I mean, to what extent is there, this uh, like people who worked for the Bernie Sanders campaign, like Mike Haska? Yeah, my yeah, former spokesperson for the Bernie Sanders campaign now with, I believe, Bill de Blasio in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, to what extent is this actually about differences in strategic approach and just like the sort of cultural politics of the Democratic Party? Um, I think maybe a little bit of both, right? Aren't they intertwined? I feel like. Uh, you know, yes, we have heard this argument throughout. I feel like the primary too. You know, there are, there's this traditional Democrat. There's this traditional approach of like there are certain people you're not going to win over, and you just like focus on other people. And then there are people in the party who are like, no, you got to make a play for all these other people. We can win them over. We can convince them of our message. You know, this populist message will resonate more. It will attract more people who maybe vote Republican. Um, And, you know, honestly, in a lot of ways, that's what Donald Trump did. And it paid off for him. He went after people who Republicans traditionally don't win over and don't attract. And people sort of scoffed at him as he said he was going to expand (laughs) the Republican Party. And he actually did do that. Uh, I don't know if he'll keep them <laughs> after right, this. But, but, well, especially with the way he's been <laughs> governing and stuff. But I mean, uh, Nate Cohn at the New York Times did a, a, an analysis of three swing states and concluded that about 25 percent of white voters who had voted for Obama in 2012 flipped to Trump. Right. That is an enormous, you know, in a close election, you know, you can blame any single factor, but that's an enormous number of Democratic voters who were just persuaded to change teams. Isn't this the, sort of the same thing? This thing that happened in Kansas with Democrats saying, no, we can't do that. We must be more cautious the same thing they did in the Democratic primary, like you just mentioned, Amanda, where they said, oh, people might like Bernie Sanders and be really enthusiastic about him, but we've got to be more cautious. Yeah. We need to be more establishmenty." <laughs> and then they got their asses kicked. <laughs> How many times does it have to happen? It'll just keep happening forever. 
Well, the internal party dynamics are, are such that it's just very hard for people from the outside to, to get involved. I mean, even, uh, you know, you look at the, the Tom Perez, Keith Ellison race for DNC. Ideologically, these people are not terribly far apart. Right. But they do play for different factions. And the reason Perez got involved at all really was just to make sure that Keith Ellison's faction, the Bernie Sanders wing, didn't take over the DNC. Uh, and, and look, by the end of the, of the race, all of the things that Keith Ellison was talking about, about how he was going to reform the DNC and he was not going to take money from lobbyists and things like that, he'd walk back pretty much everything. So even if he had won, the idea that he was going to be able to reform the institution, I think, is, is a bit of a long shot. So I think, I, I think the, the party apparatus is, is just very – it's a big ship and it's hard to turn it. It will never change. And it will be interesting because there is so much interest in running for office amongst Democrats. So the the party is going to have more people than ever to choose from as good candidates. So who are they going to throw their support behind? Are they going to go with the traditional, maybe in redder states, more moderates? Or will they throw their you know, weight behind someone more like Thompson, who's just an out-and-out, out, more populist, more progressive, someone you, they wouldn't get in the past? So uh, th- this is another great point. The, historically, the DCCC has funneled money from – Liberals that it that that do fundraising and then it uses that money to try to win in red districts with really conservative candidates who are not like James Thompson. It seems like that, <laughs> based on what happened this week, is what they will try to do going forward. I don't. I mean, we have a year and a half to to find out, but it seems like the party just won't change. And I think I think the the sort of it's very difficult for party leaders to to change strategy if. It, because to do so is, is a way of sort of acknowledging that you were wrong before. And I think this is one of the things that that some people in the Bernie camp were upset about when Ben Ray Lujan uh, was was reappointed chair of the DCCC after 2016. There, there are people in the party who say, look, uh, you know, we'd, we'd held office for, for two two elections at the presidency. The fact that we made gains in the House is actually good. There are other people who are saying, well, you know, we should have taken back the House. We, we really blew it. Um, but if you believe that you you had you did a pretty good job last time, there's no reason for you to change strategy the next time. You just think, hey, it was a tough year. Trump was a white whale. You know, we'll we'll figure out or black swan, whatever the animal color is. Uh, <laughs> it, it, I think it's just very difficult to convince people to to switch to to switch strategies in the middle of uh, of their tenure. Mm-hmm. And what will be interesting too is. Maybe the D-Trip will throw their support behind someone, but the grassroots is so strong right now that it won't matter. They'll just defeat them in the primaries. And I think, uh, yes, the, there there are a couple races right now. There's one in California uh, running against Republican Mimi Walters where there are a couple people. One is a woman who is a big Bernie person. One is another candidate who's maybe more traditional. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see who emerges. Yeah, and the fundraising at the primary stage for a House race, you don't need to raise that much money if you're an outsider candidate to be competitive. Well, Amanda, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Arthur, I guess it was okay having <laughs> you here. Uh, also, you guys couldn't hear him, but uh, my dog Gus was with us for this entire segment. I think he did a great job. Scary pit bull. Yep. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, we'll be right back. Hello, So That Happened listeners. I want to just take a moment to ask you to do a few small favors. First, if you like the show and want to help more people find it, go over to iTunes and just leave us a review. Every review we get bumps the show a little bit higher in the podcast charts. It does make a difference, and it's going to help us build this community. Second, are there issues you'd like us to address? People you think we should talk to. You should drop us an email at so that happened at HuffingtonPost.com. We really do appreciate your suggestions, and we often follow up on stories, and we just like hearing feedback and criticism. So we'd love to hear from you specifically, because you're the people that matter the most to us. Now, back to the show. 
Hello and welcome back. I'm here with Arthur Delaney, who's been guestorama around here lately, and we're very, very pleased to have our next guest for you today. Um, she is a professor of sociology at Virginia Commonwealth University and one of the very few people on Twitter who consistently redeemed that medium. Her new book is called Lower Ed, The Troubling Rise of For-Profit Colleges in the New Economy. Let's welcome Dr. Tressie McMillan Cottom. Hi, you guys. How are you? We are great. great. We're great. And we're really glad to have you on to talk about this this particular topic because I think your book offers probably a more even a more nuanced and detailed view uh, than we've expressed in the past talking about this subject. But just to sort of like get into it, um, for-profit colleges, they've been around as long as I can remember. Mm-hmm. I think I first became aware of for-profit colleges the moment I became aware of what a television commercial is. Yeah. Um, but obviously, there's been greater ubiquity for this industry late, lately, mm-hmm. greater scandal. I know it's maybe a, just a kissing cousin to for-profit colleges, but uh, there's been a recent settlement in the case of Trump University, mm-hmm. our president's scam, credentialing, mm-hmm. harvest machine. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you could talk about what about this moment uh, makes it so ripe to make to write a book about Oh, wonderful. Oh, great question. So, yeah, so Trump University is, you know, one of these things that's sort of um, bandied about in the public conversation. And I think it's, you know, it's a hot topic for a couple of reasons. One, just about sort of our fascination with all things uh, President Trump. Like, how did we create that? How did this thing happen, right? Um, (laughs) A a Trump (laughs) University type of scandal, you know, a couple of presidential cycles ago would have been enough to disqualify someone uh, probably from uh, winning a major party nomination, much less the president. Presidency. Um, you know, Trump University is an example of sort of the excesses of for-profit higher education right now. But to be fair to Trump, if that's a thing, uh, it's not exactly <laughs> a for-profit college. In many ways, actually, it's a little bit it's more cynical and worse than a for-profit college, right? A for-profit college, uh, the way that I talk about them in the book and how we normally are talking about them, they at least set up an actual school, right? There's at least a mechanism. They filed some paperwork. They exist. Whether or not the credentials or the education they produce are high quality enough to justify their, ho- their high cost is another thing. But they do at least go through the process of setting up a school. Trump University didn't even pretend to do that, right? It's not an actual school. It really is just trading on the public's faith in the word university. Um, yeah. And in many ways, that's worse to me. That's like super cynical. Um, it doesn't really, it wasn't even really producing credentials. I think the right way to think of um, Trump University is, you know, it's like one of those timeshare type deals. Um, right. <laughs> and they just slapped the name university on. And that's actually what got him in trouble. Uh, the idea that you we do have in our society, the understanding that university is such a special word, it conveys so much legitimacy that we actually don't just let people call anything a university. And the reason one of the reasons why he kind of got tripped up on that process is that he hadn't registered as a university in the state of New York. And they told him you can't call yourself a university that actually means something. Um, and I think we get an example of how uh, how little uh, consideration President Trump has for the rules. <laughs> One of the things you keep coming back to in your book, in fact, is this idea of this sort of archetypal notion of a college, a mm-hmm. university, education, and and the, the, the draw and attraction culturally to those kind of institutions. Mm-hmm. In many ways, for-profit colleges are, are different from what we think of as traditional right. higher education. Mm-hmm. But I think you make a strong case that 
there's still a lot of strong similarities between the two. Oh, absolutely. I mean, they are trading um, on the same sort of what, uh, you know, in the book I refer to as the education gospel. Listen, for-profit colleges are very um, aware of the fact um, that we place a lot of faith in education, right? Um, those television commercials that you mentioned, right? That's how many of us have experienced for-profit colleges and their sort of rapid growth there starting in like the late 1990s, headed up to about 2012, 2013. They start to shrink after that a little bit. Um, but the commercials, that aggressive selling of the idea that the only way to be successful in our society is to get more education. And in fact, the more insecure you are about your mobility, your economic security, the more you need education, right? That's the idea that for-profit colleges are selling. Now, to be fair, all of higher education, you know, trades on that idea. The difference is in traditional not-for-profit higher education, we do have this idea that we are preparing people for one more than just a job, but also that we contribute to like a community, right? We do develop and build sort of a community of people um, and serve many different audiences within our populace. For-profit colleges have said, we don't do any of that, right? We're not public spaces. We don't provide space for your Girl Scout troop. We're not going to provide dorms or healthcare or remedial education or training or counseling, right? We only do this very narrow, specific job training. The problem is that's not what we have considered education. And in fact, it as it turns out, the labor market doesn't tend to consider that education as judged by the fact that students who graduate, those that do, most will not, but of those who graduate from for-profit colleges do not see a significant uh, income increase. I think that is telling. I think that's the labor market saying we know there's more to education than just direct job training. Uh, let's talk about the education gospel. Mm -hmm. It seems like such a great point uh, because this is a bipartisan phenomenon yes. where people say, you know, you have no education. It, it's almost as if they're implying you don't deserve a good mm -hmm. job and that you have mm -hmm. to go back to school. That's right. And even President Obama used to say this. Mm -hmm. uh, tell us a little bit more about how – has that changed mm -hmm. over the years and gotten – more intense, the education Absolutely. gospel, or have we always had it? No, we've always had the education, or at least, you know, start one education, you know, mass education sort of became a thing by the mid-20th century. We start to get this idea that, you know, one is supposed to go to school, um, and it's not just to be a good economic actor, which is a huge part of it, but we, what we said traditionally is that going to school, especially college, was about becoming a better moral person, right? You'd be a good citizen, could contribute to um, uh, to the public good. Now, what has happened that I argue in the book and more broadly over the last 30 or 40 years is that as we have disinvested in all other forms of public support for people, things like, um, oh, high quality health care, um, retirement, um, uh, supporting people as they become sick and age, things that are sort of inevitable, as we have turned away from sort of social service, public service programs, what we have said is you only deserve that if you work, right? Those are wor working is, uh, is how people get sort of the social contract. That's why we attach everything to our jobs, our health care, right? All of our quality of life benefits, no longer a pension. Now it's a 401k. But all of these things assume that you will have a job that provides those benefits. 
And so we said, if you want to buy into the social contract that used to be broadly for everyone, you now have to be working and you have to be doing a certain type of work. And more importantly, you now need to pay for that. You need to pay to become job eligible, right? And to stay job eligible over your lifetime. And so in lieu of investing in public uh, services broadly in the social contract, what we have said over the last 30 or 40 years is go to school, go to school um, to sort of earn and deserve sort of our investment in you. The education gospel then has shifted from saying this is something that we sort of owe people and people sort of owe us. Uh, now the education gospel is, listen, if you want to work with dignity, if you want to have health care, if you want to be able to afford child care for your children, if you want to grow old um, uh, in a sort of high quality way, then you need to go to college. And well, that's a problem uh, because college isn't meant to do all of that. And in fact, what we're seeing is college can't do all of that, right? The labor market has to take care of some of this. Um, and yeah. historically, we shared that responsibility, right? The government and labor markets shared the responsibility of taking care of people. Um, that's why it's so interesting to hear you talk about how the labor market is rejecting these credentials because mm -hmm. it seems to me that shocks within the labor market and deterioration of labor rights have at least in part kind of fueled the rise of for-profit colleges. Yes. Here in D.C., uh, policymakers just created new regulations that would require uh, child care workers to have a college degree. This is a job – the median uh, salary for this job is something around $30,000, which is not the kind of job you would traditionally associate exactly. with the notion of like I want to aspire to get a college degree to right. do this. Right, right. And that's the sort of credential expansion that I'm talking about. Uh, right, the idea I've watched that with great interest because this is a great um, uh, example of what I think is happening. You know, overall, in many ways, for-profit colleges are providing credentials and jobs where you didn't used to need a credential. And because of how our labor market has been set up historically, those are jobs where women and people of color have been highly concentrated. So child care workers, for example, is in many ways a gendered job, right? We think of it as a female right. job. And so this is why we see the funneling of women into the for-profit college sector. Listen, at the lowest levels of for-profit colleges, 75% of those students are women. I visited campuses during my research that were 100% women. For-profit college credentials are very much preying on uh, the sort of labor market patterns that have impacted women for a long time. And I think the example of the child care worker uh, in D.C. is just perfect. Low wage sort of work. The idea that you can upgrade the quality of the work by requiring people to get a college degree without actually upgrading the quality and pay of the job. <laughs> That's exactly what the for-profit college sector is uh, benefiting from. And you can see I, – I can predict they'll probably swoop in to now fill this oh, gap. Yes. Oh, yeah. They're going to set up – listen, there will now be – I mean I don't make many predictions. I'm a sociologist, so we don't do that really. But I <laughs> would be willing to give you money I don't have. Jason and Arthur say that in like, oh, I don't know, five years if that long. You'll be able to see a path of new for-profit college branches across D.C. and Northern Virginia within a couple of miles of child care centers. Willing to bet you money. Dollars to donuts. <laughs> 
<laughs> Speaking of money, back in 2013, you wrote a piece called The Logic of Stupid Poor People. Mm-hmm. It's probably one of the first things I read by you. Aww, and it's thanks. one of the things that, that, that tipped me off that you're someone to be reckoned with. Uh, in the piece, you discuss how poor people, especially poor black people, are often publicly stigmatized mm-hmm. for the choices they make with their money, the things they right. buy, the things they own. Mm-hmm. Uh, does the same sort of stigma attach itself to people who are caught up in the for-profit college system? <gasps> oh, absolutely. Wow, what a great guess. Thank you for that, by the way. So for me, yes, <laughs> this is all part of the same thing, right? So this idea that poor people don't consume right, right? They don't consume in the right ways. And that if they would change their patterns of consumption, they wouldn't be poor, right? Um, and so the consumption becomes sort of like a negative credential, a way to say that somebody is inferior and has stigma attached. In many ways, the argument I'm making about for-profit colleges is that, yes, they have the same sort of negative credential or stigma attached to them. Um, in many ways, because we've allowed a college degree to become a form of consumption, Right. That's that's where this starts when that's that's what undermines the whole process. When a degree becomes only its economic its direct economic value to an individual, it is then just a consumption. Good. It's just a good. And if you were going to do that, then it makes absolute rational sense if poor public sense and poor moral sense, but rational sense. For people then to assume that people who have certain type of degrees have the qualities of the institutions that they attended. And that's where we now see. So, yeah, I think part of the reason why employers, there's a rash of recent like studies out over the last year or so, uh, trying to get at whether or not employers value or accurately um um, identify for-profit colleges on people's resumes. Um, and the patterns are pretty clear that employers do not uh, put a lot of faith and stock in for-profit college degrees on a resume. Well, when you realize that those resumes are more often attached to poor people um, who were using them to try to get themselves out of the cycle of poverty and near poverty, then yes, it becomes a consumption good pattern. Bait and switch. Yep, Exactly. Uh- you know, just let me close with this. One of the things that, that your book impressed upon me is that anybody out there might know someone, a loved one, a friend who's mm-hmm. thinking about getting one of these degrees, yes. attending one of these schools. What advice would you have for, <laughs> for someone who's who's contemplating getting mm-hmm. getting their degree in these schools? Because you yeah. take a very nuanced view and even the people for in the for-profit college industry in the book describe you as being very fair-minded about it. So what would, what advice would you give? Well, thanks. I think I hope they still think that. I'm I'm not sure. I think the more people read the book, the less fair they think I am. But they did start <laughs> out by thinking I was fair. <laughs> and that's a tough question because what I'm fundamentally arguing in the book is that there are a lot of structural constraints on people's choices and that individuals can't through, you know, hard work or bootstrapping get themselves over. But that doesn't mean that people don't have agency. And I always want to respect that, too. Um, listen, I, you know, wrote this book and I have family members enrolled in for-profit colleges right now, um, <laughs> you know, n- knowing the right thing to do, as presumably my family members know, doesn't necessarily mean people can do the quote unquote right thing. It's tough. Right. Um, the best co- course of action that I've experienced is to explain to people what the differences are among institutions. First of all, so much of this stuff is implicit knowledge that people just don't get. Um, knowing that there's a difference between your local um, community college or state college and Everest or, or some other for-profit college is really sort of a middle-class inheritance, right, to know those differences. So talking about those things in sort of plain English with people helps a lot. 
But then I've also found it useful to ask people not where they want to go to school or why they're going to school, but I ask them what they want school to do for them. Now, that's a different question, right? Because that question then gets at things like, oh, they're tired of working a crappy job. Or they want to switch types of jobs because they're feeling like they're getting older. They need to get a physical work. They want to move from construction to an office job, you know, something like that. Once I get to what the sense of what you really want the education to do for you, then I brainstorm with people. Okay, are there other ways for you to get there? Right. Let's exhaust all those avenues first um, before you go and enroll in your local for profit college. And while those things are harder to find, they do exist. Recently, a friend of mine was interested in becoming a certified nursing assistant, um, which is a mainstay of the for profit college uh, sector. Right. And once we talked about it, he wanted like a stable job. And and this was a sort of female gendered job. And so he felt sort of uncomfortable talking to people about it. Right. And so all that kind of stuff. And once we talked about it, I said, oh, you realize you can get your CNA over at the Red Cross. Like the Red Cross offers that. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Which is what he ended up doing, by the way. So he goes to the Red Cross and gets like a partial scholarship for something that's like a three or four thousand dollar program, as opposed to spending 20 grand. Right. That makes a wow. huge difference in a job where the median pay is like 12, 13 bucks an hour, which is a increase for him, but not enough of an increase to have justified the debt he would have taken on in the for-profit yeah. college sector. So brainstorming with people. Yeah. Practical advice. That's a good deed, a good deed. <laughs> All right. Um, thank you for coming on the show. Uh, the book is called Lower Ed, The Troubling Rise of For-Profit Colleges in the New Economy. It is available anywhere fine books are sold or downloaded. Uh, Dr. Tressie McMillan-Cottom, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you guys for having me and for being such wonderful readers and reaching out. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, it's our pleasure. Uh, we will be right back. Hey, folks, just wanted to add a little postscript to this segment. Moments after we finished recording our interview with Dr. Cottom, news broke that Chicago Mayor Rahm Emanuel had proposed a plan that would require Chicago public school students to show that they had obtained an acceptance into some kind of college, university, or school, an internship with a firm, or gained a stint in the military in order to receive their high school diploma. You can bet your bottom dollar that for-profit schools will step up to exploit this new opportunity should it become law. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Zach Young. Our executive producer is Nick Offenberg. I'm Zach Carter. And this week we were joined by author Tressie McMillan-Cottom, as well as Huffington Post reporters Arthur Delaney, S.V. Date, and Amanda Turkle. So That Happened is available on iTunes at iTunes.com slash So That Happened. Check out the whole family of Huffington Post podcasts in the iTunes store. And while you're there, subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, send an email to so that happened at HuffingtonPost.com. Thanks to all of you for listening, and we miss you already. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. 
And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.